The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focus summary of chapters 21 and 22. Nautilus, we are told, is one of the first communities to have developed a week's habit. From Christian Science Week to Osteopathy Week to Georgia Pine Week, energetic spirits hold committee meetings, give talks in churches and cinemas, and enlist pretty girls to sell tags on the street to raise money for their charitable cause. No organization could rival Almas Pickerbaugh in the production of Weeks. From Better Babies Week to Banish the Booze Week to Stop the Spitters Week, one week was hotly followed by another, until people complained, My health is being ruined by all this fretting over health. With all his weeks, Pickerbaugh still has time to preside over a committee of the State Convention of Health Officers and Agencies. His letter to the members, with the homey pep of lines like, Are you coming to the health bee? It will be the livest hop to it that this busy little old planet has ever seen. Succeeds in attracting attendance to outdo any health convention in the world, despite the outrageous claim of some that the message was undignified. Martin questions the wisdom behind some of these weeks. He is not convinced by the assertion that tuberculosis could be eradicated by stopping the spitters and closing your windows. Nor is he any more persuaded by the statistics that Pickerbaugh uses to back it up. Pickerbaugh is offended by his doubts. He is of the belief that if he is sincere, his opinions must always be correct. Pickerbaugh is also of the belief that it doesn't matter much if his statistics are wrong and his methods undignified. If it does good, it's justified. Martin isn't sure. Maybe, he thinks, truth doesn't really matter. Maybe it matters to him like anybody's hobby does. He loves truth like others love golf. He resolves again to stick by Pickerbaugh. He is further impelled to defend his chief from the attacks by doctors like Waters, who fear he will reduce their earnings. But he is weary of Pickerbaugh's statistics, which, taken together, suggest that every person in the city has a 180% chance of dying before the age of 16. Pickerbaugh merely snorts at Martin's mention of the concept of variables, and insists that everyone knows about the causes of disease. Eventually, Martin begins to question even the practical value of Pickerbaugh's campaigns. He notices the increasing boredom with which each new effort to save the world is met. And worse, he discovers the slimy trail of the dollar in Pickerbaugh's campaigns. His talks seem conveniently adapted to the interests of the audience, and his message is carefully tailored to avoid offending people. Martin begins further to question all leaders, and preaches to himself what Gottlieb had preached. The loyalty of dissent, the value of being doubtful, the wisdom of admitting your own ignorance, and the importance of moving slow. When he isn't interrupted by quarantines, dairy inspections, and letters to school principals, Martin enjoys the feeling of rest that comes from working in the lab. When Martin questions Leora about whether she has enough to do, she becomes suspicious. And with good reason, since we next find out that Martin receives regular visits to the lab from the Pickerbaugh daughters. Martin listens with fatuous enthusiasm to Orchid's childish opinions, 
admires his experiments while admiring her ankles, and asks inappropriate, suggestive questions about what a kid like her should do if she falls in love with a married man. Martin moves from shamed reluctance to a determination to take what he can get. But while he spends days flirting with Orchid, he spends nights in self-criticism and in fear of Leora's critical eyes. When Leora goes home to Wheatsylvania for two weeks, she tells Martin that she hopes he won't look as foolish when she comes back as he's been looking lately. Though Martin swears to himself that he won't go see her, he finds himself one evening loitering toward Orchid's house. Leaning over her is a 20-year-old clerk named Charlie. Martin makes an awkward attempt at youthful conversation, while Charlie and Orchid giggle over things that make him feel a hundred years old. After Charlie leaves, Orchid turns her wiles on Martin, saying how nice it is to talk to someone with brains, unlike that horrible, slangy boy, the one with whom she'd just been happily giggling. Martin struggles to determine whether Orchid has any brains at all, but his opinion of her intelligence is enlarged when she praises him for his knowledge and strong willpower. In the enchanted Pickerbaw domain, he holds Orchid's hand and feels lonely for Leora. He leaves without even kissing Orchid goodnight, rages at himself for being a little pilferer of love, and then goes to bed yearning, Oh, Orchid. Then, one day, when Orchid comes to the lab, he kisses her. A day later, she calls to say they mustn't ever do that again, and asks if they can meet to talk it over. Martin agrees to meet her at eight, and meanwhile tries to work in the lab. But his mind is blurred by confusion about whether he ought to be a free and happy sinner, or cautious and moral, and about why he feels so glum. When Leora returns, he says that he's a respectable, moral young man, and that he'd hate it if it wasn't for the lab and her. Martin is coming to terms with the fact that Pickerbaugh is destined to be more famous than Sandalius, and certainly than Gottlieb would ever be, when Pickerbaugh says he is going to run for Congress, and asks Martin if he'd like to run the department. Dazed by his shattered illusion that congressmen are persons of intelligence and importance, Martin is barely able to get out his mechanical congratulations. And, sure enough, the Republicans nominate Pickerbaugh for Congress. Martin begins his reign by getting himself denounced as a tyrant and a radical, when the discovery of Streptococcus and three cows forces him to quarantine a milker and close the Klopchuk dairy. Klopchuk, a well-loved, self-made man, is pitiful, but Martin is principled. The word in Nautilus thereafter is that Martin is in the pay of labor union thugs. Martin inspects the steel factory of Clay Treadgold, one of Nautilus's elite. The two men hit it off, and Martin and Leora are brought into Nautilus's smart set of Ashford Grove. In the home of the Treadgolds, Martin and Leora came out of themselves and were not laughed at. They are welcomed into the group like its poorer relations. Leora confesses to Martin an old desire with a mysterious source 
that completely engrosses her. She wants to know France. She asks Martin if perhaps someday, maybe in ten years, they could go. He is touched by this request from a girl who never asks for anything. Leora and Clara Treadgold become good friends, spending afternoons sitting on the sun porch, reading, doing their nails, smoking cigarettes, saying nothing, trusting each other. But Martin is not content with her acceptance in the group. He becomes worried about her comparative sloppiness. When he criticizes her for it on a drive home, she makes him stop the car and declares that she will not be a floozy or a harem beauty and says he must accept the foolish sloppy wife he's got. She says she wants them to be equal to anything they run into, that they shouldn't be inferior to anyone, and certainly not to this bunch. When Orchid comes in the next day, he kisses her with a brisk cheerfulness that proves her unimportance. Preparing for his role as the next director of public health, Martin vows not to lie down, to fight, and to succeed. The next of my posts was called, I've Done That. I mentioned recently that almost daily I make a connection between something in Aerosmith and my own life. He presents an array of common and relatable life situations, but he presents them through the Sinclair Lewis filter, making what is important about those life situations more stark and vivid and plainer to see. Let me give you two somewhat funny examples from recent chapters. A few weeks ago, I gave a talk called Falling in Love with Poetry to an audience of about 150 people. I had done a practice run of the talk, and it was very well received. So, unlike Martin, I was fairly confident going in that I had something valuable to share. Nevertheless, I am an apprehensive public speaker. In part because the material means so much to me, I worry every time that I will fail at communicating its value. A few weeks before my talk, I had the cliché anxiety dream that I showed up to give it unprepared and in my pajamas. The day of the actual talk, I was milling around talking to people as they arrived. At one point, I took off my cardigan, and a few minutes later, my daughter was bounding toward me and zipping up my dress. She told me a dear friend in the audience had alerted her, and when I looked over at the friend, she gave me a warm and supportive smile. Surprisingly, I wasn't at all embarrassed, I think largely because of that smile. That heightened my enjoyment of the scene with Leora and Clara Treadgold. Clara is the consummately polished society girl, and Leora a self-declared, foolish, sloppy wife. And when Leora shows up to a party, just like I did, Clara says sweetly, Leora, I do think you have the sweetest back, but do you mind if I pin you up before the others come? After Martin finishes his talk, in which, to his surprise, comprehensible words seem to emerge from his lips, Lewis says it is received with, quote, the most enthusiastic applause ever known, unquote. But then he adds that, quote, all lecturers, after all lectures, are gratified by that kind of applause, unquote. That made me chuckle, and made me reflect with a little amused self-consciousness on the applause I myself received. Because he is so right. 
if you experience any anxiety over public speaking, the applause you receive is emotionally amplified. It feels thunderous because it feels validating. That is not to cynically devalue my audience's response, which I know was sincere, but rather to notice the unquestionable psychological truth that Lewis is illuminating. I bring these up not as amusing ends-in-themselves connections, but to make another point. There's a very pleasurable, mutually reinforcing value in making connections between literature and life. The author's filtering lens can help you find meaning in your life experiences, and the connection to your life experiences can help you to better enjoy literature. I'd love to hear of places that you see yourself in Aerosmith. The last of my posts was called How Aerosmith Came to Be. An article in the New York Times book section, written in September of 2000, praises Aerosmith for its timeless insights and inspiration, and tells the story of how the novel came to be. You shouldn't read the article in its entirety yet because of the spoilers it contains, but I'll excerpt it here. Quote, In the autumn of 1922, the celebrated author of Main Street and Babbitt was introduced to a bacteriologist named Paul de Cruyff by the critic H.L. Mencken and by Dr. Morris Fishbein, the editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association. De Cruyff, who'd earned his Ph.D. from the University of Michigan, had just been dismissed from the Rockefeller Institute for Medical Research, now Rockefeller University, because it had become clear that his hands itched for a fountain pen instead of test tubes. Lewis and de Cruyff, who was still several years away from his string of best-selling books, including The Microbe Hunters, popularizing health topics ranging from germs to sex hormones, agreed to collaborate on a medical novel. They soon booked passage on a steamship to the West Indies, where they could work without distractions. By January 1923, Lewis was exclaiming that de Cruyff was, quote, perfection. In all of this, there's a question as to whether he won't have contributed more than I shall have, unquote. De Cruyff was essential to the novel. Nearly all the scientists, physicians, and medical institutions portrayed in Aerosmith were drawn from his experience. The result is a remarkably accurate, if not always complementary, historical document. Unquote. The connection to de Cruyff was brought to my attention by one of our group members, an infectious disease specialist himself. I was delighted to know about it, because, as it turns out, de Cruyff's Microbe Hunters is one of my favorite nonfiction books. I highly recommend it. Microbe Hunters presents the discovery of microbes as the fascinating, world-changing, and epic story it is. And rather than learning about cells, as we all did in school, where you open a textbook to a picture of them and the assertion that they exist, it allows you to follow the fascinating process of discovery. I wish there were many, many more books about science written like this one, but my impression is there aren't.